Tonight, we continue with this study. It's a study. These are not sermons per se. They're, they're not preaching necessarily. They're not just teaching. Sometimes we use the word treach. It's a combination of teaching and preaching. And we're going through uh, what we want to think of as the, the identity markers of, of a biblical church. And I want to assert again this evening that for any organization to be effective, including the local church, that organization must begin by understanding its identity. The reason why we need to understand our identity is because we do what we do out of what we are. We do what we do because we are what we are. If you're a fireman, you put out fires. If you're a brain surgeon, you operate on people's brains. If you're a math teacher, you teach math. If you're a biblical church, you do certain things based on how God wants a biblical church, what he wants a biblical church to be. So you first come to terms with who you are, and then you do according to what you are. So identity is the answer to the question, who are we? And that should always be the first question. The second question is, why do we exist? That's about mission. The third question is, how do we get it done? That's about strategy. The fourth question is about, where do we start? That's a strategic question. The fifth question is, who should be doing what? And really, if you want to push it, the sixth question is um, exactly uh, what do we do right now? All those are just practical, sensible questions, but they're questions that we are seriously thinking about in one sense for the first time in the history of the church. And right now we're answering the question, who are we, biblically speaking? What has God constituted the local church to be in its essence? Because it does out of what it is. And after an introductory sermon on my part, showing the three-dimensional nature of a biblical church, upward, inward, and outward, upward in worship, inward in community, outward on mission, Pastor Jonathan came to focus on the two spheres of the gospel. I, maybe you remember if you were here, uh, he helped us understand the gospel from a micro perspective, God, man, Christ response, and he also helped us to think about the gospel from a macro perspective, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. These are not in contradiction to one another, they intersect with one another, and Pastor Mark came back to show us how this whole gospel ought to work together and what happens when you overemphasize one to the neglect of the other. If all we're about is the gospel of the cross on the micro level, God, man, sin, or God, man, Christ in response, we um, may not be interested in God's cosmic purposes of redemption. But on the other hand, if we're just interested in the big, big plan of God, then we may not care about evangelism. And we have to keep both of these perspectives in mind as individuals and as a church. And Pastor Mark said to us uh, a few Sundays ago 
that we're saved by the gospel for the gospel. And then last Lord's Day evening, Pastor Jonathan began to treat the first of the five identity markers that we're focusing on in terms of who we are. Uh, We're worshipers, we're family, we're servants, we're disciples, we're witnesses. Let me say that again. We're worshipers, we're family, we're servants, we're disciples, we're witnesses. Those are five things for sure that the church is to be. Now, tonight, I want to lead us in some thinking about that second one, since last week we thought about the first, namely worshipers. Tonight, I want us to think about us being a family. Now, you're part of a family, your own family. It may be a small family. It may be a rather large and extended family. But as a member of this church, as a part of this particular local visible community of believers, you're also members of a larger family, a spiritual family. And I want us to think about that and the implications of that tonight. Now, we have not yet unveiled our mission statement publicly. We have met with all of the deacons and some other strategic leaders in the church to share it with them. And we plan to unveil, if you will, that mission statement three weeks from tonight on April the 21st. And that will also be the occasion when we will set forth the structure by which we think we should accomplish the goals of our mission. And central to that statement, which has not been completely publicly unveiled, are these words. You've heard bits and pieces of this statement. Gospel-centered community of worshipers. Gospel-centered community of worshipers. Now, there are words that precede it and there are words that follow that statement. But those words are critical. And for tonight's purposes, the word that is most critical for what I'm going to try to open up to us is the word community. You've been hearing the word community, community, community. And uh, even yesterday in our men's discipleship video series, we thought together as men about how wounded we are, how self-inflicted is the wound of aloneness. Men who do not find other men of God to be involved in their life, with whom they can be completely open and candid, from whom they can seek counsel and accountability, such men usually are self-wounded. Their wound is self-inflicted. And we considered a lot of the reasons, and one of the biggest reasons we don't choose to have other brothers in our lives to help us in that area is because of pride. We're just ashamed. We don't want our brother to know how weak and how sinful we really are. And of course, every sister should have some sisters in their lives to do the same thing. I think one of those men said to us yesterday that you should have a Paul in your life who's a mentor over you, 
And you should have a Barnabas in your life who comes alongside of you. And God willing, you should have a Timothy in your life who is under you in the sense of someone that you can mentor. And we suggested in our little breakout group that at least you should start with a Barnabas. And you, dear sisters, should start with a sister in Christ who also could come alongside of you. It's, it's wonderful to know that some of our women, and even some gathered here tonight, are actually mentoring some younger women. And others of you do have sisters who uh, help hold you accountable. But all of that is a part of what community really is. It's, it's being more closely, more intimately Involved with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And that's one of the purposes of our community groups, is to develop deeper love, deeper affection, greater openness, more transparency. And I think that is happening in each of the groups to varying degrees. Some of them are experiencing wonderful community in that regard. And we want to push on, and we want to grow, and we want to mature in that area. But since I've raised the word community, what I want to suggest tonight is that our covenant community is actually, from God's perspective, a family. Community, in all of its warmth of implication, is actually thought of as more intimate when we use the word family. And I just want to remind us all tonight, brothers and sisters, we are a family of believers. And that's what God has constituted us to be. That's how he wants us to think of ourselves. And the better we come to understand the familial, that's just an adjective for the word family, the more we come to understand the familial nature of our community and the better we live out and work out the familial nature of our community, the more enriching that community will be, the more edifying that community will be, the more attractive that community will be to the world. Because one of the things that will be manifested in this family life is love. And we must never forget the words of Jesus when he said, By this shall all men, thinking especially of those who are outside of the body of Christ, outside of the Savior, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. So we want to develop that kind of familial love in the community of the church. So it's good for us to think about the family. And of course, in addition to it being enriching and edifying and attractive to the world, it's pleasing to God if we make progress in what it means for Heritage Baptist Church to be a family, a family of believers. Now, I want to do just a brief theology of family, very brief. But I hope it will be helpful. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to begin to see just very quickly how family was God's idea. Where did the family come from? 
Even sociologists know that it's the basic unit of society. Is it just a sociological evolution? It's just something that somehow evolved and happened? And yet it's universal? No, it is a social unit to be sure. But it was one that God himself created and instituted. And when we come to verse 26 of Genesis 1, we hear God talking to God. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the plural pronouns. A little later, we won't go there now, but in chapter 11, verse 7, we hear God saying, let us go down, down to Babel and confuse their language. Who's us? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the revelation of God's word unfolds, the doctrine of the Trinity emerges with greater clarity. So we see that God is a social being. One God, three persons, each of them social. And one of the best chapters that you could ever read in any book is, a, I don't know which chapter it is, but it's toward, toward the end of um, Keller's book called The Reason for God, where he talks about the the delight that the Father takes in the Son and the Holy Spirit, the delight that the Son takes in the Father and the Holy Spirit, the delight that the Holy Spirit takes in the Father and the Son, how it is a perfect delight, and that in creating us, just by the words of this text alone, we understand this, we were made social beings. Let, let's let us make man in our image. So part of being made in the image of God is to be made social. We are social beings. And an antisocial person is considered sort of strange. Sort of not ordinary. And we want to help people who are antisocial because we were created to be social. So God, in his plurality of persons, three only, made us in his image. And then, if you'll notice chapter 2 and verse 18, we hear God saying, It is not good that man should be alone. So he was created with the potential to be sociable. And God says, I'm going to make him a helper suitable or fit for him. And then we have the revelation of how he was alone and felt his aloneness. And God wanted him to feel his aloneness. And then in verses 21 and 22, we read how God solved Adam's problem of aloneness. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made 
into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam and Eve became married. And the first family in the history of mankind was formed. You don't have to have children to have a family. A husband and wife make a family. The concept of family comes into existence by the creative glory of God who, who wants that which is good for man. Man, it is not good for mankind to live alone. It is not good for males to live alone. It is not good for females to live alone unless God has given them the gift of celibacy, which, which he does sometimes give to people. But other than that, it is not good. We were designed to have companionship. And so the family is born. But the family isn't completed. God could have created two men and put no sexuality in them whatsoever so our minds wouldn't have to go with how weird it would be for two men to enjoy one another's company. He could have done that. But he wanted the family to be more than just two people. So he created a male and he created a female so that they could have children. And when we come to chapter of four, verses one and two, we find that Eve gives birth to Cain, and then she gives birth to Abel. And of course, in the interim, in chapter three, is the fall of mankind. So the family is already fallen. The family was fallen before they had children, but the family is clearly fallen after they have children as well. And the first human being born becomes a murderer. And so the, fa- the family is fallen. And the family is dysfunctional, and the dysfunction began in the marriage itself before they had any children. You know how Adam wanted to blame his wife, and the wife wanted to blame her, her husband, and, and also especially the devil. And there was dysfunction in the family, and, and there's been dysfunction ever since. And it's an interesting thing to, to see how dysfunction manifests itself in society, in the, in the realm of the family. If you want to do an interesting study sometime, go back and watch the, the, the television programs that were built around the family. And, you know, go way back. Go back, you know, to, was it the Cleavers? Was that a name? Go back to the Waltons and then just kind of move forward and get to the Cosby's and get to the more modern ones. And, and, the, and the, the more recent they become, the more dysfunctional they are because they are a reflection of culture. And we can say in one sense, well, all of these programs that are on television now and movies and so forth, that's an attack on, it's an attack on culture. And it is, but it's, it's first a reflection of culture before it's an attack on culture. It's both. It's molding culture and it's reflecting culture. But one thing's for sure, the family is dysfunctional. And God's ideal for the family has not been realized because of the fall. But God knew that all along. That was part of plan A. And so God determines to bring about a higher ideal for family. Just like he determined to bring about a higher ideal for marriage. Adam and Eve's marriage was never the same after they fell. 
But God created a different marriage, didn't he? A marriage between Christ and the church. And God has created a higher ideal for the family. He hasn't done away with marriage. He hasn't done away with the family. But he's created a higher ideal. And even now, that ideal is not perfect because we're still sinners. But there is a new family. And it is this family. It's the family of believers. And this was God's plan. And God's plan was that the family of believers gather in local assemblies and covenant together to be a community, a community on mission, a gospel-centered, worshiping community on mission. But the intimacy of that community is beautifully portrayed by God in terms of family. Now, Having said all that, could I just ask you to turn to another passage real quickly? And that would be Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. This is a text that makes us think about the birth of our Savior, God's sovereignty over history. By the way, I hope you saw that in Pastor Mark's sermon this morning when it said in Acts 17 that God has determined the bounds and the limits of every nation, absolute control of history. And here we're told about the fullness of time. God is in control of the fullness of time. Everything's on his timetable. So Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. But it doesn't stop there. So that he has, he has an even more gracious intention than just redemption. Redemption serves a purpose. So that we, we who are redeemed, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The purpose of redemption is to create a family. So that God could adopt people into his family. And if if we chase that theme down, we can just find that all through the New Testament. And so many times, the writers of the New Testament address us through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and use the word brothers. I was looking at some of those texts today. And it's, it's quite interesting that the Greek word for brothers, the plural form is adelphoi, And if you have an ESV translation, I think virtually every place that you find the word brothers, you'll find a footnote. And then that footnote, if you've ever chased it down, says, or brothers and sisters. Because the Greek word adelphoi in the plural usually actually means brothers and sisters. Not always, but usually. 
Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. So we've got adoption. We're adopted into God's family. So who's, who's the father? God is the father. We are his sons and daughters. So what does that make us in our relationship to one another? If God is our father, then we are the brother or the sister of other brothers and sisters. It makes us a family. That's what it makes us. It makes us a family. And God wants Heritage Baptist Church and the members of it to think of themselves as a family. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters adopted by God's grace into his family. And this is the point I want to make. As spiritual brothers and sisters, we have an even deeper affinity. We have a deeper bond. We have a deeper relationship than we even have with our own blood brothers and sisters. Now, the most beautiful thing of all is when your blood brother and your blood sister and your blood mother and your blood father are also your spiritual brother and sister and father and mother. That's the ultimate. And it isn't a beautiful thing for us as Christian parents to have children who are believers. And in one sense, they're our children. And in a spiritual sense, they actually are our brother or our sister. And, and I want you to appreciate that this relationship is the deeper relationship. It's the deepest of all relationships. It's God's ideal for the family. And the clearest proof of this is what Jesus himself said to his own mother and brothers. I know you're familiar with it, but I want you to turn quickly to Mark chapter 4 and notice how he spoke to his brothers and sisters and especially his mother. The words seem a little bit harsh. They weren't harsh. They weren't disrespectful. They weren't unkind, but they were necessary. His brothers and sisters and mother needed to understand something. Did I say chapter 4 or did I say 3? I said 4? 3. Sorry. Chapter 3. Notice verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to to seize him. For they were saying, He's out of his mind. Who's saying that about Jesus? His mother. She had forgotten things that she learned at the time of his birth and the angelic visit. She had forgotten what happened at the age of 12. Remember, she kept all these things secret, but this is about 30 years later. She's lost perspective. And then there's an intervening section here in Mark where the the scribes and the Pharisees um, accuse him of casting out demons by the devil himself. 
And then when you come over to verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And here's the broad principle. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus doing? He's showing us the, the deeper family of God. And his, his mother needed to hear that. And his brothers needed to hear that. He said, in essence, my most intimate relationship is with those who do the will of God, who are true believers. They are my brothers and my sisters. And that's what we are to him, and that's what we are to one another, and that's the ideal that needs to be manifested and realized in the life, in the day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out life of a church. We are a family, and we're a pretty good family, and we do quite well in many regards, but we want to do better. We want to bound more and more. We want to love each other better. We want to care for each other more. Family sticks together. Family cares for one another. Family is loyal to itself. Family will go to great sacrifice for one another when they're in harm's way. Family prays for one another. And so God wants Heritage Baptist Church to remember who we are, okay? This isn't who we ought to become. This series is on identity. This is who we are. God has made us a family. We need to live more and more and more and more like a family. We need to work toward that. And as we do, we will find that we are accepting of one another and we are committed to one another and we are intentional with one another. Let me just say a word about acceptance. It's a beautiful thing that in the family of God, everyone who trusts in Christ is accepted. I said to our Sunday school class this morning, entrance into this family uh, requires you to be a, a convicted but pardoned criminal. You can't be a member of God's family unless you are a convicted and pardoned criminal. That's for starters. <laughs> That's who we are as brothers and sisters. And, it, and we're an assorted lot of people. It's really quite amazing. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees that tax collectors and harlots are going to get in the kingdom before you. And the kingdom and the family of God is made up of tax collectors and harlots. I'm going to read for you who cannot become members of the church. Listen to this. 
see if you know where I'm reading from. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that would be like fornicators, nor idolaters. Pastor Mark told us this morning that a good thing, if it becomes too important to us, is a bad thing. If a good thing becomes a God thing, it is a bad thing. And he helped us see that idolatry has to do with food, clothing, cars, houses, sports, popularity, personality, influence, toys. So when you read the word idolatry, don't be thinking of people who bow down on a carpet somewhere. No, says Paul, they can't become members of the kingdom. And obviously they can't become members of the church. Neither sexually immoral idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot become a church member if you're these things. And Paul says, yes, you can. Such were some of you. Now you have been washed and you've been sanctified and you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's writing to a church. He's writing to church members formerly guilty of these things. So the church is made up of, a, of an assortment of people who really make for the strangest of all social clubs. And I know that a lot of churches are just a social club. You know, we say that. We say that church is just a social club. I'm saying tonight the church is supposed to be a social club. Because God made us social beings. And we're to care for one another and be with one another and spend time with one another and enjoy one another and comfort one another and pray for one another and care for one another and exhort one another and do things together with one another. We are a social club, but it's a God social club. And we're family. But the, the amazing thing is uh, how diverse the, the people of God are. This is the only organization that can have rich and poor, educated and uneducated, all kinds of races, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of wickedness, people who grew up in godly homes, people who grew up drug addicts. It doesn't make any difference because at the foot of the cross, all the ground is level and we're all one and we're family. And, and we need to function like a family. So I just want to encourage you tonight to remember that's who we are. We're a family. And, and this, this message is not about shaming or scolding at all. It's, we're, we're thankful as your pastors that you function in so many regards like a family. But, but we all can and need to do better. We need to spend more time together. We need to protect one another. We need to have one another's backs. We need to serve one another. That's probably a big thing right there, serving one another. Um, in the near future, as we unveil the structure for ministry, and I don't want to go into detail tonight about it. I'm happy to whet your appetites, but uh, we will be announcing that on the 21st. I've already said implementing it in June, the first, first week of June. And, for example, just our children's ministry and our youth ministry 
really exciting things planned from preschool through high school on Wednesday nights. You know what we're going to need? We're going to need moms and dads and brothers and sisters who say, let's do this together. Let's help one another. Let's serve one another. Let's help this family of believers. Wasn't it Hillary Clinton who said it takes a village to raise a a child? Was it a child? Is that what it said? You know what? Honestly, it really does take a church to raise a child. I mean, not absolutely. I'm not saying that a family can't possibly raise children without a church. But what I am saying with no hesitation or apology whatsoever is it was never God's design for a family not to be a part of a church where the whole church can help and pray for one another and encourage one another and pitch in for one another. We're going to need some, some real loving family sacrifice in the days to come. And we're excited about it. But uh, what, what we need to do is be willing to serve, and we have to fight the natural tendency to be consumeristic. Maybe you've been hearing that word a lot, you know, and I remember the first time I was hearing, what's that about consumers? We're consumers. Well, consumers are people who want products and who want stuff for themselves, and they buy it for themselves, and people choose churches that way, and, and I think we do need to think about what a church has to offer. Obviously, we want people to come to Heritage because we offer good things, but there's also an extreme that we must not fall into, and that is, well, which church will give me the most? Pastor Mark stood up here about four weeks ago and said, what if this church only offered one thing, the gospel and service? Would you go to a church that just offered that? But there's a proneness in all of our hearts to say, well, I want to go where I'm going to get the most bang for my buck. And they serve a better steak down the road. Let's go there. We can get better steak there. But what we really all need to develop, starting right here, okay, this is a genuinely humble statement. What we all need to develop is a willingness to say, I'm rolling up my sleeves, man. I'm going to help this church. Heritage is really trying hard. These pastors are working hard. There's a lot to be done. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm pitching in. If ever there was a time to help in this ministry to become a missional church and to help us raise one another's children and to be a worshiping people of God to make a difference in this community. It's now. Now is when we need God's people to say, it's not about me. It's about God's kingdom and the local manifestation of his glory in this local church. This church isn't going liberal, brothers and sisters. We're as confessional as we've ever been. All you needed to do is be at that worship service last night to know that. But we are burdened to make a difference in this community. We don't want to forever be a church of, well, in this case, 300 people. But we don't want to be a church that always stays the same size. Not because we're just about church growth. We're about influence for God and for his kingdom. The Bible isn't against church growth. The Bible is for church growth. Read the book of Acts. And we want this church to grow by pagans being saved in addition to our children. Don't misunderstand me. But the tendency in our circles is for our churches to grow primarily through the conversion of our children and transfer memberships. One of the most encouraging things that's going on in Heritage Baptist Church right now are four or five people who seem to be in the process of being converted. Regeneration is instantaneous. Conversion is gradual. 
There's some people getting saved here. It's very, very exciting. But we need that to be the tip of the iceberg. We want to have baptismal services every month if God will give them because people are getting saved. But we're going to have to pitch in. We're going to have to work hard. And I think what will help us is to remember we're family. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters. We're committed to each other. And may God grant us more. Now, I know I took a a lot more time than I was supposed to, but Jonathan, I think, are you taking leadership? Here's the deal. I told him that the second half of the service could be shorter anyway because we don't have uh, the program for children. Got something? Yeah. Oh, good. So Catherine needs one other helper, right? There we got it. Joy's going to help. So, Pastor Jonathan, you come. I'm not. I'm not going to pray. And let's. We'll not sing. We're just uh, take the children, please. Thanks to Catherine and Joy. Yes, Larry. Okay. Children that normally meet with Evan, Larry, will meet with them as usual.